Life in the Time of Corona. I'm your host, Lindy. Everyone's lives are being impacted by the coronavirus outbreak, but no two people's experiences are the same. In this podcast, we hear from people from different places, different walks of life, with different stories to tell. Today is March twenty first, twenty twenty. We're speaking with Alberto, a graduate student in Veneto, Italy. There are currently forty seven thousand cases with a nine percent death rate. This is the worst affected country outside of China at the time of recording. Alberto, thank you so much for joining me today on our first episode. Hi, Linda. First of all, where are you right now? Well, thank you for having me, Linda. I'm currently in Treviso, which is the third largest city in Veneto, close to Venice, and currently living here. Could you tell us who you are and what you were doing before this outbreak began? So I'm a recent graduate from University College London. Before that, I well lived and studied in the Netherlands for four years, a long time. And now, after returning home from the UK, what I previously thought to be a relatively short stay eventually turned into well, this dramatic situation. It must be difficult being suddenly locked down when you just intended to stay for a visit. How long have you been under quarantine for? Uh, it's been ten days since the lockdown began. And how has the lockdown progressed since it started? So it was first instituted on the eleventh of March, I believe. So exactly ten days, and yeah. just recently reiterated. And well, it's it's really bold dispositions. It's something unprecedented for the containment of this epidemic. Help us visualize the situation there. Which shops are closed and which ones are open? So retail activities are all closed. See cafes, restaurants. Commercial activities like theaters, cinemas, gyms,、um, which the, most of the EU is now catch, catching up to. Schools and universities are closed. Public parks and spaces even have been recently closed down, as some people were, were still going out. Many companies have suspended their operations, but supermarkets, at least, and pharmacies remain open.、Um, government has guaranteed this. So no no supermarket runs yet. They remain well stocked. A lot of food and wine,、uh, gladly. Good to hear. Well, I think wine is very important under current circumstances for everyone. How else has your life changed since the lockdown? Well,、uh, if we look at the general situation, it has really been changing everything. Now, as I said. I'm in a particular phase of my career now, big,、uh, just starting. So my lifestyle, despite the major restrictions, has been impacted to a limited extent. So maybe I'm not exactly the right person to give a representative answer, but maybe what I can do is provide a little snapshot of what life、uh, has become here and how we're staying sane in the mind and how we are dealing with the issue. Please go on. What do these restrictions mean for you personally? So yeah, besides these measures of increasing intensity, this social distancing, which 
we've understood is a key key part to slow down the spread, to flatten the curve. Well, this has introduced a whole new um, way of interacting with others naturally and of living our own lives. Every time you leave your home, you must have, well, first of all, you can't really live, leave your home. The advice is to stay home right now, and rightfully so. But if you do, whether it is to buy groceries or possibly seek medical attention, then you always have to carry around a self-certification module that you have to compile. Because the police, the military police, uh, they are checking everyone uh, going out by car. So if they do not work for one of the industries who can stay open, they must have a good reason to do so. We have fines, um, even house arrest, if, um, if this is not respected. So yeah, right now you cannot leave the city. <laughs> Here in Veneto even, which is one of the regions where the lockdown has been uh, the strictest together with Lombardy, you should not even, this is the disposition that you can, you should not even walk farther than 200 meters from home. Wow. Is, uh, yeah, staying one meter away from home. Yeah. What were the first signs for you of how much community spread had happened in the region and how bad the situation had become? Definitely the, the hospital situation. And the, these were the initial signs that we have on our hands um, something very pervasive and something that will have a huge impact. I remember at the, what was it, maybe mid-February, we were receiving uh, news from China, lockdowns had begun. Well, I must say that, uh, government as well, but we, we underestimated how quickly it could reach and then spread uh, within our country. And what is your view on the Italian government's response to the outbreak? Do you think they have been transparent about their approach? That in the approach to this um, distressing situation, we've actually been positively surprised by how the Italian state has risen to the occasion. And it showcases some positively surprising contradictions. Inefficient and lacking transparency? Well, think again. <laughs> The, the Italian government, for, for once, has been acting in an incredibly transparent way, to the extent that it may seem not even politically expedient, and it took action relatively rapidly. So except for the, uh, this slight underestimation at the beginning, the measures have been ramped up very quickly, and the change has been strong and quite inclusive. So we were the first to stop flights. Within two weeks, we had a near full economic and social lockdown and uh, ramping up hospital beds and ICUs. The issue is this, that the impact has been heterogeneous over Italy, region by region, the, the, the differences are quite significant. And Lombardy now has been the hardest hit. The hospital situation is quite dire. And why is this? Similarly to what happened uh, with MERS in South Korea in 2009, the, um, the spread began in hospitals. It affected geriatrics first, so elderly uh, and an age group that is most at risk. And you think the general community sentiment is that 
they support all of the measures the government has taken? I would say so, yes. I think that for once, um, outside the stadiums, the Italian people are coming together and realizing that um, individual behavior is at the root of eradicating this, uh, this infection. Do you think this discipline is going to continue? They have realized and they are acting accordingly. Naturally, there are um, exceptions to this. People who have now been locked down for 10 days, well, are starting to... <laughs> the weather is getting better. They're starting to feel the need to you know, go back to their routines, to get out, to walk. And this, unfortunately, brings... Um, some contacts that uh, prolong this whole situation. The perspective that we're getting from the news media is that the situation is very dire in Italy. But you seem a bit more positive. Why is that? Well, I've seen the same. I am in a fortunate position to have many friends uh, around Europe telling me, what is happening? Are, are Are you well? And I'm glad they care. And also, you just need a VPN and tune into the news of another country to see how dire the situation is being represented from outside. And it is dramatic, don't get me wrong, but um, it is really being painted in a way that is, uh, I would say, quite excessive given the situation. But now, there is a side of the media and naturally more... um, Fear-inducing news is more memorable from one side. And on the other, there is an issue of communication from our side. And maybe um, these numbers, uh, hearing that here with, with half of the infections in China, we have more, we have 4,000 deaths. Maybe it is worth looking into this. And I have not seen, unfortunately, news outlets um, making a proper analysis of this. So why do you think the death rate in Italy is so high compared to other countries affected? Mm -hmm. I I cannot speak to the epidemiological side of this, so to how it has spread. But what I have been able to observe is that firstly, the number of tests. We have simply done a lot more tests than many other countries. In Veneto, we have the highest testing rate per capita and naturally with a higher number of tests more discovered then the testing strategy is important we are only testing patients right now mostly that only have symptoms already so this also brings the number up and lastly there is a fundamental point and this has not been debated enough i would say and that's it is a contentious point but it's how the deceased are treated in the statistics in italy If a patient had coronavirus at the time of death, even though it might be among other pre-existing and possibly lethal conditions, regardless of their severity, it is still recorded as a death by coronavirus, when other countries most likely do not quantify them in the same way. I just recently came across a document from the civil protection authorities underlining how 99% of all the deaths were linked to severe pre-existing conditions. 
So this points to the fact that there has been, in this transparency by, by our government also, I would say somewhat of a mistake in communications, because this then um, shows to the rest of the world, to the rest of Europe, to the US, that uh, the situation here might not be even tenable. And it is dire, but we are doing the best, and it seems uh, to, to, uh, to an extent in which the situation is going under control. So, yes. Do you think then comparisons shouldn't be drawn between countries today, especially on death rate, as we don't currently have a valid way of understanding which deaths are being counted as a result of coronavirus in other countries? In some way, yes. I would say that there is a methodological uh, issue also at, uh, at the bottom of this. And this means that the comparisons are then largely invalid, although they may still be indicative of something. Um, we, we have a different way of quantifying uh, the situation. As you said, Italy has been quick to start mass testing on the other hand, do you think some countries out there are still complacent about their response and the re reality of the virus within their own countries? How can you explain the sluggishness in, um, in other countries' response? is to me partially inexplicable. Is it due to overconfidence or optimism yeah. bias? It will not hit me. Is it a display of sovereignty? It's, it's as if you saw someone walk over, walk and slip over a slippery surface, and then decided to follow in their footsteps just to bear witness of its slipperiness. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. What do you think has been the most positive news for you in recent days? If I can give a, <laughs> a fragment of a... Of a what could be a positive news in this is that in Italy, since the lockdown, the marginal rate of increase in infections, so the day-to-day -day relative increase to the whole number, is actually decreasing. Maybe, hopefully, foreshadowing a peak in the next weeks. So this means that the healthcare and the lockdown efforts are actually helping in flattening the curve. And more than this, it is a common challenge. This is a common challenge. Our ability to reduce the number of infections through this socially and economically damaging lockdown is only useful if others follow suit. Otherwise, we risk relapses and a consequent prolongation of, um, of what is going on. What about specifically for your region, Veneto? If I can say one thing to the, to the region here itself, to, for Veneto, that the, the WHO called it a uh, model for action. <laughs> Finally, a, a reason to be proud, at least in this. We've, we've seen a slower growth compared to the other region, which I think might at least be partially attributed to its strategy um, in, uh, in public health. And what is the strategy? Well, they've employed an interesting, a hybrid model. It takes elements from the Chinese lockdown, the full 50 million lockdown, where nobody can leave their homes, and South Korea's actions, which has implemented this um, trace 
uh, test and treat strategy, where they actively go look for the asymptomatics, for the symptomatics um, to stop the, the, the infection. So it's a lockdown plus extensive testing. We've now carried out over 40,000 tests on a 5 million population. And they are now extending it to everyone they can. They want to reach 20,000 new tests per day. Then they rearranged the healthcare system to reduce collateral deaths. For example, if I now, naturally, hopefully not, but if I had a heart attack, where would they put me? This is a collateral situation because the hospitals are full with coronavirus cases. So they've moved the non-corona cases to specific hospitals and then reopened um, previous hospital structures that had been closed down. So yeah, I, I would say it's a bold, bold measures that have been uh, implemented and something that maybe for once Europe could take a page um, from, from Italy's book. Yes, from Benito's book, yes. So where I live, people have, we have started to see a couple of rounds of panic buying in the supermarkets. People are scrambling because restaurants and bars have been closed down and people are forced to start cooking meals for their entire families. How's the situation over there? Well, we are not really known for um, <laughs> takeouts and the delivery to your home. We don't have this infrastructure in, uh, in many cities. So I would not say that the change has been um, really so substantial. What I can say, though, is that uh, all the measures, all these social distancing measures, well, are then reflected in, in your, your experience living day-to-day -day things like doing the groceries. A couple of days ago, I left um, to, to, to buy a few things, to restock again. And first of all, th there is no... The supermarkets are fully stocked. At least here, there, there were no supermarket runs. And uh, the government has at least assured us that, uh, that the supplies won't be in any way disrupted which is one good thing, at least in Italy, that food and everything else is, uh, is, is at least in place. But yes, walking down the street, nobody. Nobody was around. Uh, I maybe encountered two people walking <laughs> very far from each other, and then the supermarket. All the shops that can still be open, so like pharmacies and... Uh, um, supermarkets keep their doors open walk in <laughs> there was a person walking out at the time I was going in it was like no please you you before me <laughs> please please uh, <laughs> this this almost British level of politeness maybe we needed social distancing to paradoxically get <laughs> more polite and closer to each other but yes they give you gloves they give you free hand sanitizer and then there are even lines drawn on the floors of the supermarkets to tell you exactly uh, how close you should get to the counters. And uh, so, yes, I think quite a few measures have been, uh, have been implemented in this. Earlier in our chat, you told me your family works in hospitality. 
How has the outbreak affected the number of tourists arriving to the area, hotels, and small businesses in the tourism industry where you live? The impact has been profound, and this is reflected on this uh, on the slump in bookings. Now, hotels um, are still open mostly. And this is because uh, a visitor to a hospital might need to stay over in a certain city rather than another. But uh, as my family has a, it's a seasonal business that only works during the summer. Well, we haven't yet witnessed what is actually uh, going to happen. But as a case perspective in uh, in Benetton, especially, which depends on tourism, a, a large uh, a large part of the economy of Benetton is in fact tourism. With Venice naturally, with the Adriatic coast, and I, I was having different conversations. Maybe this this might be of some interest. That there are issues in every industry. I realized that can only really be appreciated by digging a bit deeper take hotels, and we are naturally concerned about the situation. We will have to wait and see. But then again, especially for the tourism industry, um, this panic in communication and this over-reporting and this um, does not help naturally. It, uh, one looking from outside, if I were a client, uh, thinking of coming to the, maybe before the situation, but thinking of coming to, to Italy. Now, I would naturally be concerned if, if I saw the, the lethality and the situation that is here, represented at least in the media. But as to hospitality itself, <laughs> there are some interesting issues that are arising. And I think this might actually be abstracted to other industries as well, that will realize that this slowdown and this halting of operations sometimes will um, have has some uh, underlying problems take booking.com for example which is itself under pressure they're you know almost a monopoly upon which countless hotels depend on and now since the onset of the virus all outstanding non-refundable bookings can be now freely cancelled by the guest, meaning that the hospitality structure, the hotel, must refund the guest. Now, business owners depend on those prepayments, often to pay fixed costs, and in Italy at least, we even pay taxes straight away. So on one hand, travel agencies are handing out vouchers that may, might be used at another time, but we even ask, why isn't booking in such a dominant position doing something similar. It will actually benefit both. So yeah, uh, this is a technicality, but it hints to the fact that there are issues that lie below the surface, which companies should begin to set up contingencies for. So to me, this feels like the same kind of underlying issues with the so-called gig economy that isn't working for the likes of Uber drivers, Deliveroo drivers, feels like marketplaces like Booking.com are revealing the same kind of preferential treatment to the one side of their market 
the demand side, and that's really the end users and not the hotel owners. Exactly, exactly. I, I would say that both sides, both stakeholders have to be taken into account. If you are such an important, uh, now I don't know what Amazon is doing, but the situation of booking in Amazon is similar. And when do you think the tourists will start making inquiries again? Usually this uh, now in March, April, these are the periods where people start planning for their holidays. And um, we have already seen, um, we are already witnessing the, uh, the questions from the clients who ask, how is the situation really? What, what can we think of this? And I think they're all waiting to, I'm sorry, to, to see how this turns out. So in the next month, we will probably have a clearer picture of uh, what the actual impact on the season will be. Yeah, and I think this is not about one season in particular. We might see the virus uh, outbreak last only a couple of months, but at the end of it, people will have lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. They'll have less disposable income because Definitely. the value of their assets have fallen. We might see a sustained impact for a much longer time. Definitely. Disposable incomes are falling. Uh, people are stuck at home. Uh, people are using all of their holidays now, so they won't then, if, if this solves itself, they won't have holidays further on. But there is also the other side that uh, if people have been stuck at home for a longer period of time, well, um, those who can afford it will probably still uh, try to, to, to go somewhere. Uh, it's, it's unfortunately, I'm not in the position to, to, to say anything about this. But we are definitely concerned. And uh, I hope the region will uh, recognize this and provide some sort of sustenance also to the tourism industry, as it is trying to do with the other industries. Well, I'm sure that once the outbreak ends, people will go back to traveling to these amazing places. I mean, I can just imagine that the canals of Venice have never been so empty in the last couple hundred years. And perhaps it will be even more beautiful by the time the restrictions are lifted and summer is here. I, I really hope that will be the case. Um, hopefully as it slows down. It, it depends. It all depends also on the European uh, situation, how all the other countries react to this. Because naturally, if, um, if, our, if the situation slows down here, but it is ongoing in other countries and the borders remain closed, then there's not much that we'll be able to do. But yes, Venice must be really a special site right now, uh, with nobody around. With the water that has become clear, the swans have returned, the ecosystems are getting their foothold on Venice again. It's a particular time, yes. So on that, what are your thoughts as a European living in Europe what is your view on the coordination of efforts between European countries in terms of the combat against this virus? I feel like the commitment to European projects seems more of a lip service these days. Suddenly the borders are back 
and the fundamental pillars of the project like freedom of movement have been conveniently ignored. Do you think this is another blow to the European Union? This is a, a very important point. Um, well, f- from an EU perspective, the measures have been mostly, if not exclusively related to monetary policy, which, and, and we haven't seen any other joint approach to this, uh, to this question, which is a matter of collective solidarity. This is what we need in this time. Infamously, uh, a few days ago, maybe I can say something from the EU uh, point of view, is that, um, well, Christine Lagarde made this announcement, the head of the ECB, and she declared that single state spreads, so like a measure of liquidity of uh, countries, uh, financial markets, and they are not res- a responsibility of the ECB. This sent the stock exchanges tumbling, it raised the rates of the Italian sovereign debt, and investors naturally panicked as it increases the cost of debt, refinancing and the default risk. And my question is this, this statement is a bit contentious because this is not really a single state issue. And although there is no single public health strategy in the EU, which is insane, you might say, there is a regulation on, and this is from a firm Europeanist, but there is um, no single public health strategy. There are regulations on the size and color of fruits, but there is no um, health consideration enshrined into law that has a separate body of law. So yes, and most importantly, as per EU mandates, price stability and employment are responsibilities of the ECB. So after this, we've seen that quite some measures have been taken since that statement. Yesterday, the EU Stability and Growth Pact has been suspended, meaning that the 3% deficit rule can be exceeded, so states can more flexibly spend, engage in state aid and supportive financial measures. Then they announced the PEP, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, or how they like to call it, the Big Bazooka. 750 billion uh, in bonds will be bought by the ECB as a form of, I, I would say, extended quantitative easing. And, it, and it's interesting how across the world we see different approaches to this. The US recently said that they're going to try helicopter money, so giving, now printing the money, um, giving the money straight uh, to, in the form of cash to, to every citizen. Yeah, so I guess the real question here is, with all this money being pumped into the economy, is it really going to reach individuals and businesses in time? Because all of these measures are required right now. What we're seeing right now is a liquidity crisis, not only financial liquidity, as the falls in the stock exchange are comparable to 2008, but the EU baseline scenario is already at negative percent, so negative 1%. So basically our baseline scenario is that we are already in a recession as the Eurogroup. 
And on top of this, and I would say most importantly in this case, in the short term, we have an accounting liquidity crisis of companies. Companies cannot pay their employees or households liquidity. Many households are struggling and this will happen more and more as the lockdown progresses. So measures, joint measures, are to, to, to many's opinion quite fundamental in, in this situation. And as an economist, what kind of joint measures do you think we should be taking? There's an interesting thought. I would like to say, you know, as an economist, I, I must air my, my thoughts in some way. Let us consider for a moment our incredibly efficient, globalized, interdependent, and yet very fragile economic networks. No, all this time, we, our supply chains have pursued efficiency and cost-effectiveness, and you can have a package from the U.S. in a day and a half to your door. But this has sacrificed any functional reserve, any inventory, at the expense of resilience. My cousin, now studying medicine, I was having this conversation with him, and he put it quite well, that our organism has functional reserves for almost everything. You can live with one lung or kidney and you live your whole life supporting that, let's call it extra kidney, but there is an evolutionary reason for having two and that is resilience, that is resistance to outside changes. So this whole pernicious virus has been like a grain of sand that stops the wheels of the whole economic machine. Now, call me a pessimist, but Following the historical path we're on, I do not foresee a slowing down of the frequency with which crises occur, whether related to public health, resources, or climate. So maybe I have a question for you. Despite our oversensitivity to low probability events, like this black swan event we're living right now, we keep on discounting hyperbolically our risks and failing to plan accordingly. Why is this? Do we have to see it with our own eyes before doing anything? Um, I'm not sure I can really answer that for you. But I think you're right in that the world is heading to a place of no return. This is not going to be the first time or the last time we're going to see black swan events, catastrophes, pandemics, natural disasters. Instead, I think we're going to see them more and more frequently because as a species, we have become selfish and really only look at the economic incentives for behavior. And really nothing illustrates this better than Trump, right? He's made, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and cuts into the National Security Council, the Disease Prevention Agency, only to see his decisions bite him in the back today. Mm -hmm. Those would have been the agencies that would have done the planning and preparation for these kinds of events. But this is not just a US issue, right? This is sadly a reoccurring theme we're seeing throughout the world Basically, as we continue to multiply and 
create irreversible damage to our natural ecosystems, we're sadly just going to see more and more of these global catastrophes. And my hope is that we can collectively recognize this as a turning point and reflect on how we have failed to protect ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. It almost is uh, philosophical, right, in nature? Definitely. And do you think people are going to prepare themselves for the next catastrophe? So if we will learn from this? Yeah. I think it, uh, we will see many different responses across the world. Some, uh, some unfortunately, yes, sometimes have a very um, short historical memory and uh, I, I really hope and, and I think it will again it, it will definitely leave a mark we have never had at such an unprecedented scale a full lockdown of several economies uh, Schengen partially suspended you said the, the movement of goods yeah in times like these we start realizing where the where the fishers uh, begin creating and I, I hope we take stock of this to to then act upon it but it's going to be up to the to 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 separate countries uh, to deal with this or to come together for for some solution it will definitely bring some political change now I don't know I don't want to speak as to the US but uh, they're realizing now the severity of this and uh, I think we can expect some changes towards the end of the year, especially given that this is an election period. So as a recent graduate from university, how do you feel currently about finding a job in today's market? Well, um, personally, uh, I graduated now in sustainable resources, so I specialized in resource productivity and circular economy, um, low carbon transitions, and, and so on. And my question is, my doubt is whether once this will be over, will people care more about these issues? Will there be a spillover because we've had such a cataclysmic change because of this, because of this event? I am concerned about this, but then again, hiring will never come to an end. So what do you look forward to most when this is all over? Okay, I, I don't want to become a cliche, you know, or anything, but today when I woke up, I have no idea why, but I thought of a pizza, a hot a hot pizza with some, I don't know, I really, maybe I was dreaming about it. It was, um, it, it's the small things, seeing people. Actually, you know, we, as Italians, I would say, we, we need the personal contact. We need to actually be in the presence of someone. Uh, this is actually quite tough for me, speaking across a screen. And <laughs> I, I, I'm imagining I'm actually talking to. I can assure you I'm not a robot. <laughs> yeah, you can't see the hand gestures through the screen, but uh, they're happening. Yeah, don't worry. I'm definitely imagining it. <laughs> 
So do you have any last tips for how to keep sane during the quarantine period? What are we doing to keep sane? That's an important question. I, I think that's the most important thing for, for whoever's listening. That, well, it's, uh, first of all, it's a thing of mindset. It's, it's a surreal situation in that we have many, um, there is a lot of dissonant imagery around us, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of mixed emotions. On one hand, we, we hear the outcry in the media, shouting out of the TV, and then we walk down to find utter silence in the streets. We hear of the exhaustion of healthcare workers, and then the singing of people from their balconies. So there is hope and acquiescence. There is distress and disbelief. It's such um, it's difficult to describe the situation, but what to do? Individual behavior is fundamentally important. It's like a civil duty right now. That means for us, at least, staying home, avoiding contact with others, especially the elderly. Uh, now, everybody has become a jogger, apparently. Everybody has to go for a jog. When the last time they, they ran was in fifth elementary. <laughs> Those were his words. So, Do you jog? Do I jog? No, I didn't jog before, and I, and I wouldn't start jogging now. <laughs> At least I'm very young. No, you know, we try to keep our routine. This is the thing. Naturally, everybody's mental health is at stake. What is your routine? My routine. My routine. My routine is keeping active, at least mentally. So, you know, this, this is a time to... to read that book you wanted to read or catch up to the work. Now I know that many friends are doing smart working now. What is smart working? Oh, sorry, this is a word. You, you see, Italians like to use English words that not even the British use. So uh, it's working from home. Ah, I see. And yeah, which is a very new thing, apparently, in Italy. And uh, some companies have set up the infrastructure, but... Mostly, um, you know, there are some differences. Italy is a manufacturing-heavy uh, economy, so people still have to go in and work. But I know of friends who are now doing smart working, and life is proceeding just the same for them, just they can't leave for the office. So I would say keep active, at least mentally, maintaining your rituals, your routine, as much as possible, even if it means walking from the kitchen to, to the bedroom, <laughs> keeping in touch with others. We're seeing now so many apps coming up. Now there's this house party is taking everyone by storm. In which yeah, I've seen it. I've gotten an invite to. I haven't opened it yet. Right? <laughs> it's quite fun. I mean, it's like a FaceTime where you can play games and stuff like this. Th this is a good thing, you know, planning ahead uh, changes everything. Even though we, we might not know when that's going to be, um, at least knowing what you're going to do once this is done, I think it gives you a different mindset. I think one journalist once said, um, or her writer said, keep a light and hopeful heart, but expect the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's not a time for cosmic pessimism, but I would say level-headedness. You know, everybody perceives the anxiety, but we must not let this anxiety turn into anger. 
against the system, against others, against this devilish virus. That is a beautiful thought we should end on. Thank you so much, Alberto, for joining me today in our first episode and sharing your personal experience with our listeners. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Life in the Time of Corona. I'm your host, Lindy. Connect with us on coronatime.life. And next time, we'll be talking to Tim, an educator and journalist in Beijing, about his experience under quarantine in China.